Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we have a fantastic conversation and a number that I want everybody to remember is 57 billion. We had a, an incredible conversation with uh, my old friend and colleague, Julie Cashin, who has been working on childcare issues for I don't know how long, probably longer than you've been alive, Emily, it's a really long time. Um, she's just a policy expert on the subject of childcare, work and family. And I think what's so fascinating about this is that those issues are so critical always, but especially now, especially at a time when, as you and I both know, the burden of childcare and to some extent household economies tend to fall on women and not just because there are so many single mothers, single heads of households around who are mothers, um, but also because it is the women who uh, typically have to not just do their own work, but to make sure that they help with the kids who are now home and not in school uh, while trying to do their own work or often have to balance whether they can actually go to their job or stay home with their kids because they have nobody else to watch them. So this, to me, this conversation that we're about to have with Julie Cashin is critical and I hope everybody listens to it very carefully. It affects you, even if you don't think it affects you, even if you don't have children, even if you think Donald Trump walks on water even if you are a man, it affects you, I promise. We'll explain why, so please listen. Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we have two Julies, uh, one my fantastic co-host, the other one who Julie tweeted out an article that was also fantastic, um, Julie Cashin. So first of all, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Julie. I have been working to make uh, women's equality a reality for most of my career, uh, trying to find different paths to do that. And so I've done it working inside government, both in the federal government and the legislative side and executive branch in the state. Uh, and I've worked through nonprofits and advocacy, and I'm now working at a think tank called the Century Foundation, and I also advise the National Domestic Workers Alliance on their policy strategy. Uh, I'm also a certified life coach. Well, you're being a little modest. So I'm going to jump in and not be modest on your behalf. <laughs> Julie and I met, for people listening, Julie and I have known each other probably, I don't know, 20 years, if not longer. We both yeah. worked in the Senate for um, then-Senator John Corzine. But Julie, you are one of the people, if not the person, who is an architect of the very beginning. I mean, you helped draft the first paid um, sick days bill in Congress for, for then-Senator Ted Kennedy, who was really a leader on issues like this. Um, you certainly, in my home state of New Jersey, helped make sure that New Jersey had a very strong paid family leave bill. Um, you, I mean, consistently you have been on this issue, which continues to really plague, I think, our society for, for decades. And even now, um, despite what's going on and the fact that the burden has really tremendously fallen on women and working women to carry the burden during this coronavirus, during, during the COVID crisis of not just taking care of their kids and, and homeschooling and all the ancillary things uh, that we are always doing, like housework, but also the fact that many of them, especially the frontline workers, these central workers, have had no choice but to return to work um, and they don't have paid family leave, um, despite the legislation that was just passed by Congress and, and signed by the president. Um, your article, which was in Ms. Magazine, I thought was incredible. 
um, and really shown a spotlight on it. I mean, the lead itself just is startling. I think if people just read it, I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Um, in the CARES Act passed by Congress in March, the private jet industry alone received access to more than $25 billion bailout, billion with a B, while childcare received a meager $3.5 billion boost. That's insane. I don't care who you are. That is insane. You could be, you know, Jeff Bezos <laughs> flying around in a private jet, and that's still insane. Um, so talk a little bit about that and specifically talk about the fact that the companies with more than 500 workers somehow got out of having to provide paid family leave um, to their employees while the little guys, the small businesses, have to. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and how that came about? Yes. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of things to unpack there. So first of all, uh, you know, right now, too much of what's been happening has been about greed and hoarding and individualism, right? When what we should be looking at and we should be trying to do is what is our collective need and how can we serve that? And so what we need to be thinking about is what do families need right now? What do essential workers need right now, right? These are the people on the front lines, right? The parents who are working from home and, you know, like me, have my child doing an online Lego class in the next room so that I can, you know, be doing my work. Um, they're, you know, people who are consistently paid way too little to do these jobs in delivery and grocery and pharmacy and home health aides. Um, and so, you know, we could be and should be putting them first. So what did we see with the congressional response so far? Well, the private jet industry got access to, uh, you know, what could be $25 billion worth of bailout, while childcare, as you said, you know, received $3.5 billion in the bill that has passed so far. And paid family leave, you know, while we made a really important progress on an emergency paid leave, which allows, and paid sick days, which allow people to take time to care for themselves and their families uh, when they need to without losing a paycheck, which should be really kind of very common sense, um, it, it made a lot of progress, but it also uh, got gutted to some extent by the White House. So, that means, right, that we have all of these parents who are going to need childcare when we stop sheltering in place. And those childcares are not gonna be available anymore, right? I mean, it's not like we can just go and parents will come back and, and start paying again, right? They have to pay their rent right now. They have to pay their workers right now. And so if they don't get significant investment from the government, they're not going to be there when it comes back. So we will get back and we'll start trying to rebuild our economy. And parents and especially moms are not going to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, I thought what was so interesting um, about this is, and especially about the fact that you look at who the frontline workers are, um, and they're typically women. I mean, I can tell you whenever I go to the grocery store, venture out. Um, the people working the cash register are typically women. They're women of color. Um, I'm sure they're getting paid next to nothing. They work for large supermarket chains that certainly employ more than um, 500 employees. Um, and I suspect that many, if not most of them, probably have children. Um, and I don't know who's taking care of the kids. And by the way, I don't know what's going to happen to those women when inevitably they get sick, especially here in New York, where obviously the coronavirus, the, the COVID crisis is so drastic. Um, who cares for them? Who pays for them? Who pays for their children? 
um, to be watched when they're away. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, I say this with all the privilege in the world of, of being able to work from home and have somebody um, watch my son while I'm trying to work. But we're in the vast minority of people who can do that. And I, I just don't understand how it is possible. And maybe you can explain this to me. It's typical, <laughs> typically, at least if they, if they do something, they try to help small businesses out. But how is it possible that these large corporations, whether it's Amazon or anybody else, I mean, 24% of the American workforce, the civilian workforce, um, has no paid family leave thanks to this legislation. That's insane. That's a quarter of our workforce. Uh, and I don't think there's anything that's going to be done about it unless you know something that's moving in Congress right now to be able to do that. Well, I do know something moving in Congress right now to be able okay. to do that. Um, but I will let's back up for a second. So let's talk about this. So when we first started, you know, uh, members of Congress advocates explained, you know, we need emergency paid sick days and emergency paid family leave. And if we'd had these policies in place beforehand, we'd be in better shape because people would have actually taken time to take care of themselves when they got sick and or when they even had symptoms, right? Instead of showing up to work because they don't want to lose a paycheck, they don't want to risk losing their job. So had we had this in place beforehand, um, the legislation, you know, you mentioned that I worked on with with Ted Kennedy back in the day, the Healthy Families Act, right? If that had been in place or or the Family Act, Senator Gillibrand's bill, then we'd be in a very different situation. So, you know, we start there where we're way more at risk because people are going to work sick. Um, then we did, we had, you know, members of Congress, not surprisingly women, uh, you know, Congresswoman DeLauro and Speaker Pelosi and uh, Senator Murray, you know, stepping up and saying we need these these measures and, and put out legislation that had all of it, that had paid family leave for everyone, paid sick days for everyone. And then you had the White House come in and negotiate and basically take out employers with 500 or more employees and then give small businesses with 50 or fewer employees the option to say, this is too much for me, I can't do it. And they could opt out too. Then they went even further and they exempted emergency responders and health providers. Uh, so basically any employer of an emergency responder or health provider can say, I don't want to give paid sick days and then just not do it. There's no accountability. There's no mechanism. So you know, about half the workforce gets left out. There's no education and outreach, so people don't know that they're eligible for it, uh, that this is a thing. And it's so confusing because what size is my employer should not dictate whether I have paid sick days or paid family and medical leave. So you have that. But there's a new bill that was introduced yesterday that fixes all of those problems. Um, it actually goes back, you know, to the original emergency provisions and it would stop discriminating against people based on their size of their employer. And what are the odds of that ever getting through the Senate or, <laughs> or being signed into law? That's, oh, you know, let me live in my optimism for another I minute. Know, and I, I'm, I'm, out not, there. <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it to be a downer and I'm not I saying know. it to be cynical. I mean, I guess I am saying it to be cynical, but <laughs> I don't I don't mean to be cynical for the sake of being cynical because I, I truly hope and aspire to the fact that people of all walks of life now realize exactly who is making sure that we are fed every day um, and protected every day. And it's exactly the kinds of people who need this help the most. But what continues to just shock me is that the subject that we're talking about and the subject that you wrote about, which I, you know, I felt was so urgent and so important, 
and the reason I read that lead was because I think it's so startling. It seems to not penetrate. It seems to be that people just don't grasp what this is about. Um, and in fact, it's about them. It's, it's the whole what's the matter with Kansas mentality, people actually supporting elected officials who are against their own interests. Um, because any one of us can get sick. This is no longer a hypothetical issue, and it's no longer an issue where, well, it's just those people living in New York, the blue state elites. It's This thing is spreading all over the country. And the fact that people who work for meatpacking plants, um, which the president has now mobilized because obviously people he feels need to eat, and I, I'm sympathetic to that cause, but, but those people are getting sick transmitting those diseases back into their communities in a lot of these red states. And the reality is that they can't get paid time off. So what do they do? I mean, they, they continue to go to work sick and continue to infect more people. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's something that should impact everybody. I just don't understand why this is not, your your, your column was something that I think should have been read aloud from every pulpit no. and every church, every synagogue on the house floor. I mean, and, and I just don't understand for the life of me why this is not something more people are focused on, especially working mothers. Um, I, I, I actually yesterday interviewed uh, Rep. Stephanie Murphy from Florida, and I that was one of the first questions I asked her is, is there a reason the private jet industry is getting more attention than women and children? And she's like, that's what we're really trying to uh, focus on in the HEROES Act. Um, so it was a great, thank you again for your article because you led me off with a great question. Um, but would you attribute it to both of you, like to that politicians, I guess more so male politicians have a cynical view of workers where they think, if they give them too many benefits, that it's going to disincentivize them from working? That's a great question. I think there's so many, there's a few different things that you guys brought up that I think are really worth going into a little bit, which are, you know, one, childcare and paid leave are completely part of the same continuum, but they're actually different things. And mm -hmm. the HEROES Act did address the paid leave problems, but it did not actually address the childcare problems. It put $7 billion in for childcare, which sounds like a lot, but again, we're talking about that 25 billion for the private jet industry, right? So it is additional 7 billion, but really what's needed is $9.6 billion a month to be able for childcare to be there when we reopen and to provide what's needed safely for essential workers. And so, you know, this bill was good, but it definitely leaves something to be desired and does not fully center women and, and families the way it should. Um, I think that there, you know, we have more women of color, we have more moms in Congress than ever before. We're still not a majority, right? We still don't have the majority of power. And so I'm grateful every day that folks like Senator Murray and Senator Warren are there to, you know, their moms, right? Their grandma, they know, they get it, right? They lived this. And so they're the ones who I think are giving me hope on the Senate side that they're at least going to be standing up and fighting really hard for it because they get it. Um, but yes, I do think that too many members of Congress are either, you know, focused on what do, what do my golf buddies need, right? Like what, what are the people I know the best asking for and kind of seeing their own 
piece of the world um, and not seeing the bigger picture and not seeing, you know, that the economy is not going to come back if parents and especially moms can't work and don't have a safe place for their kids to go. Not to mention that it's not like we have this great childcare system going beforehand, right? So we actually have historically underinvested in childcare because it was women's work, right? Because it was something that women who were enslaved were doing for free and then moms have been doing for free, right? Even if they're also still working. And so, you know, this is a bigger problem and this moment and, and the COVID-19 pandemic is kind of shining a light on this huge, huge issue that's been here all along. So I am a little bit hopeful that people will start to see it differently now. Um, but I have that cynical side too, where there's just, there's straight up sexism and straight up racism, and that stops a lot of this from moving forward. Well, you know, what I thought was interesting is if you recall a few months ago, the very beginning of this, and I'm, I'm this is back in March, actually, the president did a press conference at the Rose Garden and he was flanked by CEOs um, from Target, from Walmart, all companies where uh, more than 500 people are employed. Um, and it's I think it's almost a values proposition, right? Like who you choose to be flanked by when you're talking about these issues. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being flanked by CEOs. They're obviously major employers. But I don't recall a time um, when anybody in, in this crisis and anybody in leadership um, has been flanked by the people at Target who are checking you out of the cash register. Uh, and I know Walmart has actually has actually provided pound, uh, paid leave to their employees, but some of these larger companies that don't provide paid leave, um, that are not subject to paid leave under this legislation that was passed, the people who are actually affected by this, um, the, not the ones who are sheltering in place on their ma major you know, massive estates like the Walton family or whoever owns Target, um, but the people who are actually making those ends meet. And I think that's a value statement and values proposition that I just don't see our leadership really addressing, no matter how much uh, they talk about it. There is a reason why, as you said, uh, there are multiples billions of dollars that, that the private jet industry got versus childcare or paid leave, excuse me, or, or, you know, any of this, it's just, it's insane. There's another story that just came out about uh, $90 billion that went for a tax cut that um, was basically will go, the majority of which will go to people who are paid over $1 million a year. Yep. Uh, and so $90 billion we're talking about. That's a lot. That's a huge portion of this, right? That could be going to so many other things. So when you talk about values, you're 100% right. You know, we have too many in leadership, um, and I won't get partisan, but right. I, mean, I mean it in a partisan way, <laughs> who are you know, focused on greed and the most wealthy and how to continue to hoard, right? That was the title of my article. It's about fear and hoarding, right? How do the wealthy keep getting wealthier? Um, you know, and so it's almost as if there's not even a thought to the fact that they're they're treating it like a zero sum game where, you know, you can get wealthier and then everyone else has to get poorer for you and, and be worse off. But, you know, we're seeing such extremes here, right? We're having conversations about 
it being okay for people to die so that the stock market can thrive, like that is not okay. When we talk about values, we need to think about how are we showing up for our fellow human beings and how are we showing up and, and creating a sense of community and interconnectedness. And the virus is not discriminating based on whether you make $5, you know, an hour illegally or, you know, a hundred. Um, but the way that it impacts people is. And so I think, you know, we need to start thinking about what our values are and how we can lead with love and come from a place of abundance instead of a place of scarcity and hoarding. I thought that was a very interesting part of your column um, because it, it was sort of a values proposition without saying using those words um, that rather than saying everybody can have a piece of this pie, it almost becomes an issue of, well, I want this pie and somebody else might want it too, so only one of us can get it. Um, as opposed to saying, listen, I'll use a completely off, unrelated but somewhat interconnected analogy here, but uh, when I saw that Paul Manafort was getting out of prison because of COVID fears, I'm fine with that. I mean, whatever, if he wants to, if he's at risk and he's older and he's worried about getting COVID, let him serve the rest of his time at home. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But it also means that the the African American um, person serving time for for selling you know some nominal amount of of, of pot um, who's the same age as Paul Manafort should be able to do the same and that doesn't seem to happen. It seems that we are helping more and more people who are connected in some way, shape, or form evade all responsibility at the expense of those who don't, rather than saying it's okay. I mean, you can, Walmart and Target and all these large corporations will financially be better off if they actually do what you're proposing that they do, because that means that more people will eventually return to shop in their stores. They will have a healthier uh, workplace. They will have a healthier and more expanded bottom line financially. But it seems to me that everything is just about grabbing money where you can now in the assumption that you'll be able to grab it again six months from now, a year from now, 20 years from now. Um, so why not grab it now as opposed to saying, well, why don't we just do something that's expansive for everybody? As you said, lead with love and not with, um, you know, it's either you or me, zero sum game kind of mentality. Um, and it just, I think those that was an excellent point that you raised that I wish more people would talk about. I think, I feel like it's you and Cory Booker talking about it. <laughs> <with love. laughs> Everybody I just poo talk like that too, which I appreciate. That's about yeah. it. That's about it. I think, you. Um, you know, in addition to just the, the private sector part of it, if we think about it from the government side too, my experience has been when you start talking about economic growth initiatives, you can have a list of 20 priorities, right? You can talk about, you know, here are the 20 things we need to do to grow the economy and everyone gets excited. And then you talk about care or human services or social services and people are like, oh, it's nutrition or housing. You could have one, right? We have yeah. a, a fixed pot yeah. and we need to change that, right? Like that's that's the kind of thinking that is gonna keep us down, it's gonna keep us small. And, you know, one of my conclusions is like, we need to hoard power, right? We need to start saying like, okay, 
let's get together. Let's use our, our collective power and be able to call for the things that we all need um, and, and, and stop pretending that this is scarce and stop believing that it's scarce, right? There's somewhat of, you know, I believe that there's internalized oppression that makes us kind of keep ourselves smaller, right? And, and not ask for as much like, oh, that's okay. Thanks for the 7 billion for childcare. Like that was really kind of you, right? Instead of like, no, we demand $50 billion for childcare because that's what's actually needed right now. Um, and so I think, you know, that's the kind of power I'd like to see us build. But then think about who this is, right? This is parents who are, you know, currently working and raising their kids. This is, you know, childcare workers who are just trying to like put food on their table because they're paid about $11 an hour, you know? I mean, this is, this is not a community who's hiring high paid lobbyists to go tell Congress what's needed. And so how do we build that collective power and make these changes, you know, given the kind of skewed way that we treat money in this country? Well, Hal, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? As somebody who works on the Hill, you're absolutely right. Um, nobody has time to brush their teeth, Never mind, you know, <laughs> lobby and legislation right now and the people who do have time have the money have the luxury of being able to do that so what what is the solution do you have any thoughts i think we are seeing changes right i think i think we are in much better shape right now than we would have been even five years ago on something like childcare, for example in the last five years you know we've had gatherings of mostly women of color coming together you know both parents grandparents providers, directors, you know, nannies to say, we need to do better and we need to come together and make our voices heard. And so that has kind of started this movement of grassroots, you know, support for childcare and made sure that those voices were heard on the Hill. We actually got the biggest inc historic increase in childcare funding uh, that was bipartisan just a few years ago than we have it, you know, ever before. And so, it's changing, but we have a long way to go. And I think one of the things we need to do is look at the ways that we are, um, look at what our perspective is. You know, are we looking at things from a scarce perspective? Are we looking at it from an abundant perspective? Are we looking at it as we have collective power or are we looking at it as this president has power, right? You know, and so I think we need to change some of our mindset in order to be able to lift ourselves up and make these issues number one. How many points do you think in good times would have been added to our GDP if we had childcare? I mean, everybody talks about the massive taxpayer cost of childcare, but it seems to me, and you would know the facts much better if you worked on this policy for decades, um, that whatever costs us an initial outlay, we'd be getting back in multiples um, if we actually had a universal childcare policy where people were able to be, you know, uh, I know what I paid before my son went to school. I know what I paid for childcare, and it's an obscene amount of money. And uh, a lot of women made the decision to stay home rather than than do that, which obviously means that they don't go to work and are not part of the workforce. I mean, uh, the productivity alone would be sky high, and, and GDP would be much higher, I would assume, if that were the case, right? Yeah, actually, we the, our country loses $57 billion every year in economic produ productivity because parents don't have good childcare options. So, Isn't that amazing? Holy and we just God. got a fraction of that in this bill. I mean, that's what? incredible. That's, that's, that's the number oh, I gosh. want everybody to really, who's listening to this, yep. think about. Because that oh. is, if, there, if, 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 if you are thinking purely, purely selfishly, which Julie 
and the other Julie and Emily are urging you not to do. But if you are, if you are still coming from the mindset of this is taking away from me to give it to somebody else, understand this is actually helping you and helping the country um, prosper. There's no other word to use really um, than that. I mean, fifty-seven billion dollars a year. Oh. What a, so, so do, was was there a particular motivation that caused you to write this article? Like, did you see one figure and you're like, holy moly, I'm going to just research this? Or was it just a collective building? That is a great question. I start, I sat down to write about the ways we are seeing sexism show up in this moment. And as I did, I started to get really clear on the ways in which our leader is, uh, you know, really prioritizing wealth and kind of everything that is not what my values are. Um, and so then as I was writing it, I came across the private jet number and was just floored, um, especially in comparison to, you know, the childcare need and, and what had happened with, with paid leave, you know, getting half a loaf in the end. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where the compulsion came. Um, and I still, you know, feel really strongly that we need to do a lot better for both childcare and paid leave so that every single parent can be working and the people who care for our kids can be paid a lot better too. Uh, I don't know what your plans are for the summer. I'm sitting here keeping my fingers crossed that they'll have some sort of camp option for us this summer. I'm not hopeful, but I'm hoping against all odds that it happens because you're absolutely right. I, I can't imagine going back to work or being even 50% as productive as I was in February, if that doesn't exist this summer. Never mind that if school doesn't start again in September, which I'm hearing may be a possibility for us. So, um, and that's me who, again, has the luxury of being able to work from home uh, and even taking time to do this, as opposed to most people who are either frontline workers or work for an employer who doesn't offer paid family leave, who have to make a decision between staying home forget taking care of their sick family, but actually staying home to take care of their kids, especially now when they're not in school um, or going to work. I mean, what does that say even during the time of this crisis where women, because it is largely falling on women, have to make the decision that they either go work, uh, you know, at whatever supermarket they work in, or they stay home with their infant child or, or even their school age child who obviously can't stay home by himself or herself, but can't be in school today. Yeah, and I think we, you know, we take it for granted that we have K-12 in place, which we don't right now. And so it's kind of a good reminder, right, that that even though our education system as it is, is imperfect, it is there and the government pays for it, right? We don't have that for child care. The government isn't paying for child care, but it is actually a public good. Uh, and so, you know, whenever I talk about child care, I actually talk about camp also. And I talk about school-aged children too, because after the school day ends, kids have to be somewhere while their parents are working. Most parents are working right now. And we just, we've not done nearly enough to catch up to that reality. Um, and so I think people are seeing it so clearly right now since schools are closed and this, you know, this public good that we uh, often take for granted uh, is not available to us, but it should also kind of open some eyes to say, why don't we treat childcare like that? Why can't we be having that kind of a public investment in our childcare system as well? Um, what's your hope realistically 
coming out of this pandemic? Is it a universal childcare plan of the sort that we have for schools, for lack of a better um, analogy? Is it something more modified because that seems unrealistic? What do you think can be practically done with the constraints, not just politically, but economically that we have right now? Uh, I think that the cost of not having universal childcare is bigger than the cost of having it. So, you know, I, I, I'm not willing to talk about constraints because we have constraints right now, you know, like we have moms who can't work right now. We have, you know, dads who can't work right now. And, you know, as with so many of the policy choices we make in this country, women of color are probably the worst off. And so it's just not something we can afford to let go. So I think we need universal childcare, I think we need paid family and medical leave, paid sick days for everybody. Um, and, you know, I think we need to keep working until we make it a reality and not accept no. Got it. Well, speaking of childcare, <laughs> mine is back. So I've got to run. And uh, you've given us half an hour, which is an inordinately generous amount of time. Julie Cashin, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, I think this is probably, Emily, I don't know about you, I think this is probably the most important Yeah. Um, podcast in, in years that we have done. Um, Thank because you, I think Julie it's, and Emily. It's so incredibly important to, to everybody um, all across the country. Thank you so, so much. Julie, that was a fantastic conversation. I took so much from it. Uh, what was, I guess, the biggest takeaway for you? Well, when, when Julie mentioned exactly how much money we're losing as a nation every year, uh, productivity, the, the tens of billions of dollars we're losing as a result of not having universal childcare, which is absolutely true. You know, when I had my son, um, I went back to work two weeks after I had him, not because I had to, um, but because I, well, I did have to in the sense that I have my own business, but also I went, I went back to Fox almost right away, uh, I think two weeks or so after I had him, not because they made me, but because I kind of understood that it was probably a good idea to get back back there. Um, what is interesting to me is I was very fortunate. I had a mother who was able to come and stay with him when I was working, but I also can tell you that my business kind of went to hell when, until he, he was about a year old and I could get him into a real childcare because I, you know, I spent way too much time, as I should have, focusing on him and on his health and on his well-being. And on his development, on the other hand, I was lucky enough that I had the luxury of being able to do that. And then I can tell you that once I put him in childcare when he was a year old, I'm embarrassed to even say how much it cost me a year, but suffice it to say, you could buy a very nice car for less money than it cost me a year. So that's crazy. That's insane. No, and, and, and then it's creates that inequality that they were talking that you got that we were all talking about that the, those who can afford it then are able to pursue their careers and those who can't have to stay home. Yeah, and you think about the fact that children go to school if you have universal kindergarten most many places don't but let's assume that in first by first grade everybody's in school the kids are six that is six years out of the workforce for a woman who cannot afford to stay, to go to work and put her son or daughter or several of her children, most people have more than one kid, in childcare. Um, that's, how do you get back into the workforce after more than half a decade of being out of the workforce? How much are you set back financially? How much are you set back professionally? All of that is 
something that I think most people don't consider. Maybe they do consider it, but the economic toll. That's why I kept saying in the beginning, people should listen to this even if they're not women or they're not parents. Because this affects the GDP of the country. It makes fiscal sense. It makes fiscal sense. And you look at other places around the world, developed places around the world, they have accessible childcare. You don't have to choose between spending often tens of thousands of dollars a year on childcare or going back to work. Of course, it stands to reason that mothers often choose to give up their careers to stay home to take care of their infants uh, through the age of five or six because they find that it's more economically beneficial to them to actually stay home than it is to go to a job which co- which pays less than it would cost them to put their kids in childcare. On the other hand, what do those parents do, those mothers do, when they the kids do go off to school? What do they do? How do you get your career back? If I had stopped my career for six years or five years until my son went to kindergarten, I'd be starting from scratch. I mean, really, I would have lost all my clients. Obviously, they would have found other people to represent them. Um, As I said, I was a fox when uh, my son was born. If I had said, uh, you know, I'm going to just not go back to to working at fox, um, you know, fox would have found somebody else, as they should have, and they would have. Um, That would have been the end of that. And... So that's hard. I mean, you know, it's 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 an impossible choice that women have to make. And it feels like the, the more you have to begin with, the more affluent you are to begin with, the more affluent you can become by virtue of being able to afford to continue your career. Um, if you are at a place in your life where you can't afford to pay for childcare, you are it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you grow poorer by virtue of not being able to develop professionally. And that impacts everybody. Again, that impacts the gross domestic products of this country. It impacts every single one of us. There is a hidden, not a hidden cost, there's a real cost, but a cost that is not financial cost that I think is not discussed for every single household when this kind of thing is allowed to continue. And if there's anything this virus has done, I truly hope that we now understand the role that our frontline workers, most of whom, many of whom are women, have in our economy, in our society. And I'll tell you, women, until this issue is resolved, Women can't go to work. Great example. I can't, I cannot, I have not set foot in my office in two months. I have worked from home and I have the luxury of being able to do that. Why? Because I have to take care of my son because he's not in school. That's every day for people who can't afford childcare. Not just from the coronavirus. Julie, what is making you happy this week? I'll tell you what's making me happy. And by next week, my, my happiness may be shattered. I got a email from my son's camp saying they're hopeful that camp will still happen this summer. That is not negative. It is very positive. I was very happy to see that the email was not, we are sorry to inform you that camp will be canceled this summer. Um, I imagine you held your breath as you were opening that email. Well, they're making a decision. They said, I think by mid May, which I think is tomorrow, um, May 15th. So I don't know, but I will say that I am just, uh, it goes back to what we discussed with Julie Cashin, which is, you know, I, I do need to get back to work. I, I do need to get back to work and not just, uh, look, I can work from home the same way that I can work from my office. It's just a question of, you know, whether I'm sitting here or there, but I can't focus in the same way. And I can't focus because I have to make three meals a day 
to feed my family. (laughs) I have to do the dishes. I have to do the laundry. I have to, all the things that I would be doing anyway, um, but not to this extent. And, and, And most importantly, I'm helping him with school and making sure that he does what he needs to do. And again, he's not... 16 he can't really sit there and and do it on his own um it must make it just impossible to compartmentalize it too because at least while you're out of the home when you're in your office you're like okay i'm in work mode but when you're home you're like look at your kitchen and you're like shoot i have dinner now to do it's you know it's it's that but it's also more basic than that it's you know if i'm helping him with math uh or something or or his writing and then i get a call from a client and it's oh my god i have to take this call cuz i'm being paid to take this call on the other hand i have a little kid who's looking at me like why are you taking a call from a client when you know you're supposed to be focusing on me it's it's impossible i mean it is impossible right. it's very hard to be a working mother or i shouldn't even say working it's very hard to be a mother under any circumstances but this has really shown me how you you just cannot have it all in that respect you cannot do you cannot both focus on your professional needs and on your childcare needs at the same time. Both get shortchanged. Nobody's getting it. My clients are not, you know, hopefully hopefully they're not listening, but they're not getting 100% of me. Um, and neither is my son. And that's awful for everybody involved, but especially for him because, you know, he's my son. So I truly am hopeful, God, I, I hope and pray that it will be safe enough for us to be able to go to camp for him to go to day camp this summer. And so that I can at least, um, make sure that somebody is focused on his needs exclusively and I can focus on work and and trying to get business back on track. How about you? Uh, so I did an article last week on a family friend of ours, Marshall Adler. He's a lawyer. His son committed suicide two years ago. He's 32 great kid. Um, but anyway, Marshall just got a check in the mail for $1,200 made out to his son with the word deceased next to it. And, and, and like a couple things, like, first of all, the fact that it said deceased, someone who is printing that check or whatever must've known that, um, you know, the kid's deceased. And then Marshall getting this check, he was talking about grief coming in waves. And he's like, that was definitely a wave. You never know when it's going to come. But what we were able to do, I I did an interview with him, and he wants to be able to donate that money to the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation, the ER doctor in New York who committed suicide uh, fighting this. And he wants to be able to uh, give this to charity, and he's getting the article that I did is getting a lot of movement on it. So I hope, and he wants to give his son's death meaning as well. Um, and, and I think that's a great cause and a great idea to, to put those checks because a lot of people to their deceased family members are getting these $1,200 checks. That's very inspiring. It's, it's brutally, um, horrible in many yeah. ways for him, obviously. Right. Um, but it's very inspiring that he's doing that. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I'd ask you what's making you salty. But I think I, that also is making me salty because it's like, don't, don't send, they're just dead people checks. The government, I think can be better, especially when it says deceased on it. That's making me salty. It's made it, his Marshall story is inspiring me, but it's simultaneously making me salty. Understandably. So I mean, that's just, wow. Um, what's making me salty. Whoa. What is making me salty? What's making me salty is what's, uh, 
Uh, Flynn? Flynn's making me sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, we touched on it with Julie, but it's it's the whole... It's, nobody's even pretending to be anything other than self-interested anymore, whether it's what we talked about with Julie um, or what we talked about with... Um, uh, or with Michael Flynn, because the problem is that Michael Flynn, of course, is buddies with the president, so no wonder that he is getting a pass from the Attorney General of the United States, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer. Again, Paul Manafort, another great example. Don't mind that they let him out of prison. He's older. Although Loretto, where he is, doesn't have any COVID cases, but it doesn't matter. I get it. He's a white-collar criminal. He didn't kill anybody. I don't mind him serving the rest of his time at home, at home confinement. On the other hand, um, there are plenty of people who are in prison for something much less serious than he did who are not getting out. I mean, they're just not. And uh, including all the people in ICE detention. Right. Who are there because they came into this country, you know, they're undocumented immigrants they didn't kill anybody. They didn't defraud anybody. They didn't engage in corrupt behavior on the Michael um, Flynn level or certainly on the Paul Manafort level. Um, I guess Michael Flynn hasn't been adjudicated to have engaged in any corrupt behavior yet other than lying to the feds. But um, So that, that, that part is actually very depressing to me. The, the double standard, and it's what we talked about with Julie, that there are consistent standards as they apply to people who are connected and wealthy and politically powerful versus those who don't, um, who don't have that. And that's awful. I mean, it's brutal. Uh, and I am completely all about criminal justice reform. I'm the kind of person who doesn't think you belong in prison unless you really did something awful which is why a lot of, you know, the Bridgegate, I don't know if you followed this, the Bridgegate verdict came down from the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court overturned the Bridgegate convictions of Bill Brony and, and Bridget Kelly, both of whom I know. Bill is one of my closest friends. Um, I know Bridget not as well, but I do know her. Um, two people who were about to go to prison or in the case of Bill already had started serving their prison sentences um, for the Bridgegate mess. And I'm very happy the Supreme Court ruled on that because I don't think this case should have been prosecuted with a prison sentence in the first place. I, I don't have a problem with it being prosecuted if there was a law to apply to it, but I but I think prison should be reserved just for the worst of the worst, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think Michael Cohen belongs in prison, even right. though he did something pretty horrible. Um, there are other ways to punish somebody financially, you know, other ways, but other rather than locking them up in a cage. But... Um, it's what Julie talked about where you have to sort of lead with love and, and make sure everybody gets a piece of that pie. It doesn't mean that if Michael Flynn gets out of, not Michael Flynn, if, if Paul Manafort gets out of prison, some poor black kid has to stay in prison for doing something equally not right. unfair, so not killing somebody, but, but for, for, for dealing drugs or for, you know, whatever else they're, you know, they're, they're in prison for. Um, so, you know, I, I I wish people would just understand that it's not an us versus them mentality. Um, and that if I could have pity for somebody like Paul Manafort, who I think is a pretty bad guy, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did some pretty shady stuff on behalf of the Russians and, and their Ukrainian allies. Um, if that's the case, then why can't people have sympathy for the frontline worker who needs childcare? Um, why not have sympathy for the people who desperately are in need of PPE, the personal protective equipment, and not saying, well, let's put states against each other. And if New York bids more than New Jersey, then New York should get it. Um, and we should all be competing against each other as though we're con- contestants on The Apprentice. Also, the virus doesn't have borders. It it will spread. So that that's yeah. true. And if you have a weak local government or state government, that doesn't mean if you have a strong one next door, that means the weak one will spread over. So help everybody. You know, it's so absurd. I went to give, I don't know if I told you this last week. I went to give, we didn't do this last week. So no, I didn't tell you. So, you know, I had, I had COVID. So I I went and got the antibody test. Long story short, I went and donated plasma. And that's, I'm not patting myself on the back for it. I think everybody should be doing that if they're in a position to do it Um, from a health perspective. It doesn't at all, um, require much effort. It's an hour of your day, if that. Um, And you could really help somebody potentially uh, who has the virus. Well, I think that's a good, leading with love is a good nugget to- Julie Cash and Cory Booker, now us. There it is. All righty, till next week.